0: bar heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for another time and a place of peace so we can worship you through the study of your word. Thank you for sending your son to die in our stead, for taking on that burden of debt and canceling it out on his cross. He is the only one who could have accomplished what he did, so we are very grateful for his work. Father, we pray for those who reject such things, particularly the truth and the word regarding our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that the darkness that has beset them be lifted and that the light be received in humility. We pray that your will be done, no matter what. No matter how painful the circumstances may appear to the lost. It's all worth it if one more person gains eternal life. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. We're on part 51 of a fantastic series, folks. Let's begin with some uh, some red letters. Go to Luke twelve fifteen. Luke twelve fifteen. <clears throat> Always a good way to start Sunday morning. Luke twelve fifteen. Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, let's go home. (laughs) I'm serious. You could seriously spend all afternoon in good, healthy conversation, especially if you've been following along from the lessons from the pulpit, on that short passage right there. That's the way Jesus' words are. They're just basically completely endowed with wisdom and insight and light. And really, that's a fantastic way to begin our summary course of action here uh, in our primary course of study, uh, specifically on this topic of prosperity that's been front and center now for a couple of weeks. And I mentioned this this past week, I had no idea as a shepherd that uh, we'd be spending this much time on prosperity, to be totally honest. We were halfway between salvation and sanctification perspectives. And he said, hold up. i want to talk to you about predestination. I want to give you some big picture things to think about. You're predestined to suffer. You're predestined to prosper. And one of the hang-ups because of where we're at uh, in the world, specifically the United States even, Prosperity is a real issue for a lot of people, and it's tough when the whole boat is full of, sh- is uh, the ship is filled with fools who think they have or they've agreed upon a definition for prosperity. When everybody's in agreement, even though the thing that they're agreeing on is false, not much is said. And then along comes an under shepherd who says, "I got some TNT. Remember, like little cartoons, the coyote." <sharp inhale> And there goes the definition for prosperity. Everybody's standing and scratching their head. You mean we've been going all these years thinking one thing, but living another? Yeah It's called the Ship of Fools." And so he's been re-equipping us. And it's a slow process. Uh, I can tell, just by body language, to be honest with you, that it's a slow process. But this is a good work. So Luke 12, uh, that passage in Luke 12, has a lot of good principles impregnated into that one parable, hint, hint. Maybe you should meditate on it on your own, just saying. Again, here's our apparent working framework. Let's not lose sight of the forest through the trees. This is where we've been already. Salvation perspectives, three tenses, really one tense from God's perspective, really salvation from sin. Anytime we hear salvation, it's a sin issue. And then sanctification, we made it to sanctification perspectives. And from God's perspective, he really just wants to set us apart for his good purposes. Uh, But we, as humans, think of it as three phases. Same three phases, essentially, as a salvation perspective, but a different angle, if you will. Now, it was upon entering the positional aspect of sanctification that the Spirit halted our forward progress on this framework. And so, predestination has been the topic of our studies as of late, and I alluded to this earlier. First, by grace, you were predestined to suffer for Christ's sake. We did a lot of good work on that. And surprisingly, I did not expect this. If you told me a month ago that I'd be teaching on predestination, you've been predestination regarding suffering and predestination regarding prosperity. I would, I, I would think that we probably would spend more time on the suffering aspect. But that has not been the case. And that's very important for all of you to think about. Why is that? Why is that? And why are so many people, let's face it, these aren't easy lessons. Why are people attracted to anything to do with suffering? I would argue that most people would rather find some encouragement Oh, I'm suffering, and Jesus loves me. And and these things are true, but don't get me wrong. But when it comes to prosperity, oh, whoa, that's a totally different thing. But we know from Scripture that by grace you are also predestined to prosper for Christ's sake. Only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. So the ship of fools really doesn't have it right until the Word sets it right. And it may make a lot of people uncomfortable for a time. It may even challenge them to change their lives to some degree. Prosperity testing poses an immediate, unavoidable, almost in-your-face type situation for us. You know, on the other side of the planet, uh, where there are a lot of things that aren't available to people, the test isn't quite as large in this area. The United States is a very wealthy country. I know this personally by going to many, many different third world countries, either in the service or even in business sometimes. And you can't believe it until you see it and even smell it and even taste it. I got violently ill one time at the base of or pretty close to Mount Everest in Kathmandu, Nepal. Who would have thought I couldn't drink the water? We don't face those things. We have filtered water. <laughs> We're willing to pay more for a bottled water than for a, a gallon of gas. Think about that. We walk around with a. Oh, I'm sorry, Melissa, I'm looking over, Melissa's got her Aquafina, right? Joey's got some kind of weird salsa thing going on. Look at everybody. Poland Springs, Denari, whatever all these things are, right? And the rest of you with your coffees, your tainted water, the caffeine injections. There are people that don't have good running water, that are drinking bacteria filled water. And yet, I can easily go out in the parking lot probably after class, maybe not after today, but after class on a normal day, and someone's complaining about something in their life. Oh. <laughs> It's like, what are you complaining about? Oh, I, my, I lost my Starbucks card. And it had eight bucks on it, and now I can't get my scone. <laughs> Seriously? These are the things we complain about? Anyways. Prosperity testing poses an immediate, unavoidable, almost in-your-face type situation for us. In other words, we have to learn to appropriate grace. If God's going to grace us out, then by definition, if we can rightly say that we are prosperous in any way, we must consider why, why he has ordained it and what we are to do with this reality. He loves me more, obviously, than the people in the third world countries. I'm so much holier than them. I must be because that's how God works. Really? You think that's what this is all about? What about missionary work? What about missionary work in your back door? I remember reading a book, I forgot the guy's name, called Savage Inequalities. And it was about St. Louis, I believe. And on one side of the bridge, it was about education. On one side of the bridge, kids were privileged. On another side of the bridge, they didn't have enough. They had one history book for an entire class. And sewage was seeping up into the classroom this far apart, separated by a bridge. I guess God loves the privileged more than he loves them. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case at all. So then you have to ask yourself, then why, why am I prosperous? We'll get to that. By definition, if we can rightly say that we are prosperous in any way, we must consider why he has ordained it and what we are to do with this reality. He doesn't say run away from the reality, does he? He says, what are you going to do with it? The Bible says, remain in the condition in which you were called. So it's not like he wants you to run away from that situation. He wants you to realize why he gave you that prosperity and then what are you going to do with it? You'll fail the test if you run away necessarily. Stated differently. Is your life filled with, let's call them trophies. Is your life filled with, quote, trophies. Do you have a trophy car, or a trophy house, or a trophy spouse even? Do you have a trophy job, or a reputation, or some other thing? Do the blessings you believe you have make you feel good about yourself or God? Do they glorify you and your labors to, quote, receive them, or do they glorify God? In other words, why did God give you prosperity? So that you could feel, what, better about yourself? This is about you. So you could be glorified amongst your peers. This is why he's prospered you out. This is why he gave you that silver spoon or the intellect to be able to excel in this world? Some say, well, I'm smart, so I deserve it. No. God gave you that brain. He could have given you the brain of a monkey. I guess he loves you more than the next, than the monkey then. I don't mean to, you know what I'm saying, the monkey-brained person. Right? Hmm. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, in the message, For Who do you know that really knows you, knows your heart? And even if they did, is there anything they would discover in you that you could take credit for? Isn't everything you have and everything you are a sheer sheer gifts from God? So what's the point of all this comparing and competing? And that's a reference, of course, to creature credit. Besides our own efforts to store up treasure for ourselves, a la Luke 12.21, just remember one thing, God is never mocked. God is never mocked. So if He says He has a purpose for wealth, and it isn't so you can be rich by world standards, then as Solomon states, storing up wealth wealth for self is like chasing the wind. What did the parable that we started off with say? In Luke, what was it Luke 12? You fool! Ship of fools. Wrong definition of prosperity. You fool. You're chasing after the wind. I gave you those things to, quote, do business. Hmm. Trophies are idols, after all. And idols are void of goodness. Up here in the board, Ecclesiastes 2.26, in the New Living Translation, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please Him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please Him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. So we discuss these two sort of categories of individuals. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. Who does God give those most precious divine prosperity gifts to? The answer to a person who is good in his sight. On the contrary is the task of gathering and collecting. Who does God curse with the pain of losing worldly prosperity? The answer? To the habitual sinner. Oh, he might let you go. He might let the proverbial line out, the fishing analogy, for a while. But God is not mocked. So if you're gathering unto yourself, you're the one who's going to be cursed in the end. If this whole thing is about you, and you refuse what's been coming from the pulpit, eventually, if not already, if you haven't discovered it already, those things are never the source. They're only the source of bondage. It's not a cot-blanc reality, but far and away, given my personal experience, and they're varied, most of the people that have the most are in the most bondage. Because once they have it, now they're struggling to what? If your self esteem is tied to it, your biggest fear is what? Losing it. Because if you lose that stuff that your self esteem is tied to, then you lose your self esteem. For some people, it's beauty. That's why some ladies, some ladies that were, quote, blessed with good looks, when they get old, they lose their marbles. Why? Because they've lost lost their self-esteem, the problem was not in, you know, growing old gracefully. The problem was in tying their self-esteem to their beauty in the first place. That's what Cosmopolitan magazine wants you to do. That's what Hollywood wants to do. Why don't you look like this, 38-pound, six-foot-two woman? Why don't you have, you know, braids going down to the backs of your knees that really aren't yours anyway? because they're weaved in somehow. Why don't you have, you know, hey, mister, why don't you have more hair? Here's some Rogaine. Why don't you try that? Why don't you try doing this? Why why are we tying our self-esteem to such things? Any pain that comes from those things is ungodly. If I don't have hair on my head, God ordained it. If you're four foot two and three hundred in 38 pounds, God ordained it. Do you understand what I'm getting at? This Look, you have to learn to accept who you are, what you are, so that something like prosperity doesn't set its hooks in you as a means of gaining more self-esteem. I mean, think about it. What could be more fruitless and defeating than gathering stuff unto oneself, for a variety of lustful reasons only to have God hand it over to someone else? Isn't the beauty example a perfect example? Everybody thinks about money, but that's not the only example. What about the one who's, you know, beautiful when they're young and then slowly everything sags down to their knees? Who's saying that's not beautiful? What does the Bible say about gray hair? That's wisdom. Wisdom to me is beautiful. Sophia. Some people even name their children Sophia, which is where we get the word wisdom. Wisdom's beautiful. Wisdom's magnificent. Want to see a beautiful ruin? Proverbs 31. That's what beauty looks like. Beauty has nothing to do with anything that the world tells you it has to do with. Just like Prosperity has nothing to do with anything the world tells you prosperity has to do with. That's the big lie. That's the big lie. Choose your poison, in other words. We can be prosperous in a multitude of ways. Choose your poison. And if your self-esteem is tied to it in any way, shape, or form, that's the lie. The point of all this is simple. Challenge yourselves right now to see if the, quote, mind of Christ... The very heart of Christ is revealed as revealed in Scripture has anything whatsoever to do with you gathering and collecting unto yourself. Look for the purpose of prosperity in the Bible. What is it really? Look for the purpose of prosperity in the Bible. You're not Here's the deal. You're not going to find it in one place. That's what people who are trying to justify something ungodly do. They'll pluck out a scripture or a particular individual out of context in the absence of plenary scripture, which means the whole of it, and they'll justify their lives that way. But if you read the entire Bible and you truly look for the purpose of prosperity in the Bible, you're going to find something very different than possibly you've been living even. See if you can find where any of the godly promote worldly prosperity in the absence of the purpose of using it to serve others and be prepared to be exhausted. You will find prosperity. You will find blessing. You will find this thing. But plenary scripture says we get it, we give it. We get it, we give it. It's an economy. That's why I use the word economy. And a stalled economy is no good. When people start hoarding for themselves in any kind of economy, secular or otherwise, the whole economy goes and the objective isn't met. uh, met. Then people go without. That's how you get up with socialism stuff. Charity goes out the window because people are hoarding unto themselves. That's how perversions come in. To state it plainly, what you will find in the Bible is this summary the purpose of prosperity in the Bible. Purpose, God gives grace to glorify himself, first of all. The past test is what we'll call the giver. Man does business with his grace by living for others. That's good in his sight, Ecclesiastes 2.26. The failed test, the keeper. Man does business for self by living for self. That's the habitual sinner, Ecclesiastes 2.26. Just remember this. The word is absolute and it is good. Repeat that to yourself. The word is absolute, and it is good. Your experiences are not. Your flesh is not. The things you've been taught by this world, possibly driven home by your own family, your parents even, not inherently good. But the word is. Remember what I've taught you so many times in the past, up here on the board. False doctrines always implode upon themselves eventually. Eventually they implode upon themselves. Under the weight of enough scripture and humility, our religions always fail, giving weight to the light of life. Again, false doctrines always implode upon themselves. Eventually, under the weight of enough scripture and humility, our religions always fail, giving way to the light of life. So what does this mean for you all? Well, that's really not for me to answer. I'm not that guy who's going to take that next step and lie to you and tell you this is what you need to do not my business my business is to present the truth that's in the bible i'm a bus driver thank god i got enough burdens in my own life i don't need yours right for real but if you're humble the spirit and the word they're going to set you free if you're arrogant and you're refusing all of this well that's between you and the lord what do you want me to say i used to get more upset about those things i still get upset but i can't anymore I can suggest the following to get you thinking straight. He lets me do those things. He kind of says, "Hold up this sign." <laughs> right? Then I put it down like, "All right, that didn't work for them. Hold up this sign." And like three people are like, "Oh, I see. I can read." Yeah. "Hold this sign." And that's what I do. Hold up signs that sort of direct you and direct traffic to proper thinking. So, I can help you with stuff like this. Consider the following regarding prosperity. Just Think plainly, folks. Just think openly. The toddler who has no concept of wealth has no bondage to it. Think about that. The toddler who has no concept of wealth has no bondage to it. The world taught you how to idolize self and others and wealth even. That's not from God. That's what the world teaches you. The world taught you to esteem those with worldly riches. There's even parables about that, warning you against that. Give the rich person the seat of honor, right? The poor person over there. What does Jesus have to say about that? Shame on you for esteeming those with worldly riches. And the world system persists. Those are some things to think about. In other words, you've been lied to, and the lie persists. And the father of lies, Satan himself, propagates these things in this world that we live in. Prosperity is a big hook for most people. And crooked, perverse pulpits have contorted even into this thing called the prosperity gospel, which is garbage. Taking things completely out of context, on purpose, to tickle people's ears. Now compare that to Scripture which says, Hebrews 4, 12-13, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What does that say? Scripture says it all. Not your experiences or your natural desires or inclinations. Even go to Philippians four four. Philippians four four. In other words, if you're going, to, if you're confused about any of this, if your life seems a little bit confusing, if now the Spirit's got your attention, what he's basically saying is that's great. I've got your attention. But do not depart from the Word. And do not do that ungodly thing of looking for things in the Word out of context to justify your ridiculousness. And don't get together with two or more other ridiculous morons to justify such things. Because that's what we tend to do. Let's get a bunch of us together. And let's ignore the pastor. You know, the one that has authority over us. Let's ignore him. Let's just pretend on this subject, he's an idiot. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts, protect your hearts even, and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, what's he saying? He's like, don't worry. it. Don't, don't, don't be anxious. Don't sweat your own self-esteem. Don't sweat the loss of the things that you've tied your self-esteem to. It's going to come sooner or later. If it's ungodly, he's going to, (coughs) Hebrews 4.12, go like this. And he's going to divide that thing from you. You can be an arrogant wimp and run away, like a lot of people do. A lot of people have. Or you can stick with it and let this good work be done in you. He's going to do this and separate you from that little religion regarding prosperity that you had or have and still have and still maybe aren't ready to let go of yet. But that's between you and the Lord. But these are the scriptures that help us. These are the ones that encourage us. In other words, you're saying, you're going to have to let these things go sooner or later because I never bless anybody because I'm not mocked for ungodliness. So eventually this stuff's going to come back and sting you. Okay? Some of us already know what that's like. I'm thinking of people right now outside of my own family that know that lesson very well, that had it all. And they lost it all. And their self-esteem went poof. And their worldly reputation went boom. And they're sitting there scratching their head wondering what just happened. Well, God just did you a favor. So do you see it, folks, what plenary scripture can do for you? It protects your hearts from being led away into bondage. Go to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. Plenary scripture, when you're looking for the purpose of prosperity, it protects you. That's the whole point. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You see, plenary, when I say plenary scripture, I mean looking at all of it from big picture. That's what it means. Okay? Plenary. More than one. Plenary scripture gives us that big-picture perspective that we so desperately need in our studies. For example, go to 2 Corinthians 9.6. 2 Corinthians 9.6. Speaking of the purpose of prosperity, speaking of that question, well, what do we do? I mean, why does God prosper us? What are we supposed to do with that grace? 2 Corinthians 9.6 says it. I mean, it's hard to get much plainer than this, I think. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. That goes out to the person who collects and gathers unto themselves and is a miserable crank. Seriously. And I don't mean the person, these miserable cranks, they're expert at smiling. Oh, I'm great. Ask him. I'm great. I've never been better. Well, then I guess you're contrary to the Word of God. Hmm. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If God came up to you today and said, Hey, I want to, I want every, empty your bank account, give it to me, and I'll give you a few things of eternal value. while you're at it, sell that nice car, sell the house, give to me those things, and I'll give you things of eternal value. Would you do it? Most people wouldn't. Too stuck in this world. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that exactly what's going on? He's like, I gave you that thing that you're holding on to, that you're making a claim to. Now all I'm asking you is to give it as part of my economy to, say, the needy, for example. And in that process, if you do that thing, I'm going to bless you out. For the one who sows bountifully, reaps bountifully, right? He's not a liar. Nope. I trust in my stuff more than I trust in you, God. That's what you're saying. I trust in my stuff in my ability to manage and do business for myself more than I trust you. You can say all you want otherwise, but the proof is in the pudding, right? Don't just worship in word, but in deed and truth, little children. So says the Apostle John. Now, before you get all crazy and go home and say, Honey, we've got to empty the bank account and sell the car. <laughs> Verse 7. So you don't get all loopy. okay? He's not trying to destroy your life. He's trying to deliver you from bondage. And everybody has different areas of bondage that they're stuck in. Verse nine, or 9, 7 then. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, the maturity principle is that you're going to give from a good heart, a heart that actually has humbly submitted to the Word of God, and the Word of God has shown them, has promised them certain things, like verse 6. But he doesn't want anybody to have knee-jerk reactions. He wants these things to happen in due time. That's what we call sanctification. Because when these things start, when you start truly from a good heart, giving from a good heart, we call that imparted righteousness. That's that experiential sanctification phase that we haven't got to proper yet but we call that imparted righteousness. It means that you're doing something good that you wouldn't do five years ago. You're doing something good, not because you're religious, but because you actually want to. You saw a need, let's say, and you literally, seriously, in your heart, wanted to. said, man, you know, I could take this $500 I got extra in the bank account right now, and take a little trip down the Cape, and eat lobster, and blah, 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 blah. Or, here's this need that I realize is true. I really want to give it to this. Who cares about that? I'm going to heaven. Here's a need. Most people will fail that test, most. But what the word's saying is, if you pass the test, you get the greater blessing. But only a a more mature person will understand that. And prosperity is a big test. It's a really big test. Here are a couple of other translations just to help out. Here's the Amplified of that same passage. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. Now remember this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows generously, that blessings may come to others. There's the economy, right? will also reap generously and be blessed. There's the economy. Let each one give thoughtfully and with purpose, just as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver and delights in the one whose heart is in his gift. One other translation in the message. Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. You see, that's the reason why he doesn't want knee jerk reactions. Okay, so you sell everything today, what are you going to do with it? I'll just give it away! To who? The sob stories? the ones who still haven't learned their lesson, the ones who keep coming back, the ones who keep being enabled by others, you are going to give it to those people and damage them even the more, all the more? Or are you going to be wise about it? You see, there's always balance statements, aren't there? That's why patience is a big deal in Scripture. So remember, there are two basic forms of giving up here on the board. So what can we give? We can give of person, who we are, time, talent, energy, attention. We can give of ourselves, or we can give of possession, things we own, money, property, stuff. A mature person doesn't care which one of these categories, it's just which category meets a certain need. It doesn't matter if it's money or time, whatever, whatever is necessary, right? But these are the things that we can give of ourselves. I've learned um, it's been amplified, let's put it that way, it's been amplified multiple times in my own life, even in this past year, that there are certain people that would much, much, much rather have my time than anything I can give them of possession They would, there's just more, I'm more useful to them. I know it's hard to believe. I'm more <laughs> useful to them as a person than I am just writing them a check. Or, or you know, giving them a present. You know what I'm saying? Like birthdays, even birthdays and stuff like that. Think about that. And most people are like, oh, I know what you mean. It's just easier for me to write a check than it is for me to, oh, i got to drive over to the house. What's the problem? Now i got to act like I care. What's the problem? Uh, Honey, if I'm not out of there in 15 minutes, call me. I'll just make an excuse. i got to take this call. See you later. You know what I'm saying. A person who really wants to do those things, really wants to do them, shows up with a certain intent, shows up with a sense of purpose. What's the purpose that they've been given a certain abundance of time, talent, or treasure, of personal possession. What's the purpose for it? And the person who understands the purpose, the way Scripture says it, and when it's been Lombano possessed in their soul, they become like Jesus. All they want to do is take the blessings and share them. So, if we synthesize all that the Spirit's been saying as of late on this topic, we end up with one simple fact, that prosperity has a purpose. Look at verse 8. Prosperity has a purpose. I know that's not popular. This is probably one of the most unpopular series I've ever taught. Verse 8. Sometimes they're unpopular outside the church, like when I teach on homosexuality. I get grilled. I magick mean, like crucified out there in the world but some are very unpopular in the church they like prosperity it's interesting verse 8 and god is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed folks come on that's that's the bible that's black and white it's not the bald guy This is what plenary scripture is all about. You have an abundance for what? Every good deed. In other words, your abundance has a purpose. You don't have an abundance just so your self-esteem goes up in the world. You have an abundance for a purpose. There's an economy in view. Let me give you two other translations in keeping with the others. Verse 8 in the Amplified, And God is able to make all grace, every favor, and earthly blessing come in abundance to you, so that you may always, under all circumstances, regardless of the need, have complete sufficiency in everything, being completely self-sufficient in Him, and have an abundance for every good work and act of charity. I hope you see the economy. He's like, I'm going to fill your cup up so much, it's going to overflow, and take that overflow with good discernment, and give it to others. Fill the cups of others. In other words, how did your cup get filled today? Ask yourselves right now. It has nothing to do with the man. Who's filling your cup right now? I am. You came to class with a cup and said, can you fill my cup, please? Oh, Monica's the only one that talks like that. right? <laughs> can, you, can you fill my cup? Who's filling it? I am. What if I said, I can't stand these people? bunch of brats. I'm not going to church today. Pfft. The heck with them. Read your Bibles. Get over yourselves. What if I did that? Well, then your cup's not getting filled the way it should get filled. Do I have a free will to do that? Yep. I'm not going to do it for multiple reasons. I to show up black and blue the next time. Spiritually. But that's not why I do it. I do it because I love you. That's not, those aren't vapid words, folks. I love you. That's a true statement. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here, certainly, for the last half-decade plus looking at your grills. Some of them are pretty banged up, just saying. People driving into all kinds of obstacles, just saying. It's like the video game when you crash the, the, the Daytona car and, like, and the hood's all crinkled. The old people, I have no idea what you're talking about. We have a purpose, folks. There's an abundance. I have abundance of energy, abundance of spiritual gift, of ability. Like Paul says, I, w- I want to impart spiritual gift to you so that you might grow. That's me acting in my, the condition in which I've been called. I don't do it perfectly, but your cup is being filled because in the economy I'm doing my piece, How about the message of verse 8? God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything, more than just ready to do what needs to be done. We also studied out in 1 Timothy 2, 9-14, to the I just think of it as the parading women analogy, this past week, resulting in this. And if you weren't here, read 1 Timothy 2, 9-14. The uh, output from that was this up here on the board. On prosperity testing, prosperity is a multifaceted test that includes not just one's own struggle with lusting it, but also one's consideration of those without it and the possibility of making them stumble. The whole idea there is parading in the church. It's just a specific example that Paul had to deal with. And that had to do with prosperity and sort of showing off prosperity. Let's review where we left off and then press on. Go to 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9. I'm going to go quickly through that piece, and we're going to get to where we left off on Thursday because there's still a few things left to be said to drive home, and then we'll press on. 1 Timothy 2: 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And this has to do with worship service in context. He didn't want women standing behind pulpits, in other words. That's what he was saying. Women must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That doesn't mean women have to come in here and not say boo. He's talking about actually teaching the word of God. There's a divine order of things. I didn't lay it out. I'm not some, uh, what do you call it, chauvinistic pig. It's like, oh, manpower, that's garbage. I go by what the Word of God says. The Word of God says men stand behind pulpits. you have a problem with that? Go to God. I don't know. What do you want me to say? <sighs> I mean, that's been challenged in contemporary times, like, you know, like it never has in the past, for obvious reasons, because feminism's on a huge rise, even in the churches. That should be obvious to all of you why that's happening. But Paul says, "...I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet." So up here on the board, the Spirit just had this little side note for us to remember. On a woman's teaching ministry, biblically speaking, women are encouraged to teach children, 2 Timothy 3.15, and younger women, Titus 2.4, but they are not to have public teaching ministries, especially ones that include men. That would be contrary to what we just read. Okay, Ministries, in contradiction to the biblical truth, are Toshuka at its height, my friends. Tashuk is that Hebrew word that we garnered from the fall, the curse of the woman. The woman wants to rule the man, remember, but the man is putting authority over the woman. That's God's doings, not mine. So what happens when that authority structure, in any way, shape, or form, when God gives authority to a male, or the gender men, like a pulpit, and women usurp it. What is that evidence of? Tashuka. What do you think it's evidence of? So ministries in contradiction to biblical truth are Teshuka at its height. Women usurping the place of man in the divinely delegated authority structure in scripture. And I believe it's just about the last frontier where godliness has been overrun by feministic type thinking. It's literally the last frontier, and it's made its way to prime time as an, quote, acceptable practice. Just turn on the television on a Sunday, and you'll, you'll see some famous women calling themselves out as shepherds over Christ's flock. But here's the deal. Christ didn't hire any of them. They're just calling out themselves as shepherds. But how can that be? If they're female? Christ never hired a single one of them. Those are the robbers. You might say, well, so-and-so, even though not am not sure they're teaching the truth. So what? What's that got to do with anything? If God says, get in this car driven by this man and go to point A, and then Satan says, but I have a car driven by a woman that goes to point A too, doesn't the right thing have to be done in the right way? You see, women want to usurp. Oh, I can do the same thing as men. I can do that. I can stand behind a pulpit. I can teach truth. Maybe you can. But God didn't ordain that pulpit for you. So people shouldn't be getting in that car, even though it supposedly goes to point A. That's the problem. And nobody seems to be caring about it. Nobody seems to be protecting the pristine objective no. The pristine Bible, the Scripture. Everybody's accepting these like erosive ideologies, right? Nobody seems to be caring about it, except people like me who seem to be losing their model, and people look at them cross-eyed. Aren't you being a little hypersensitive? No, I'm not, because if you look at plenary Scripture with plenary life, you know exactly what's going on. You know exactly all the little nuances that are being accepted by this world. Little ideologies. All the little girls are bouncing around and being taught from crooked and perverse women who have an agenda based on Tashuka. And it's despicable. And it's grotesque. And some of you listen to my voice right now are guilty of it. Flat out. Oh, look. These are just the examples that I know of. I suppose some of the more, quote, creative thinkers in this camp will say, well, there's a drought of qualified men willing to take up the mantle of the pulpit. And that may be true, even, guess what, you ready? Scripturally prophesied. But since it's prophesied, maybe we should let it happen not breach one of Christ's long-standing statutes for authority in His church. Remember, under-shepherds are ratcheted into the authority structure of Christ over His bride, His body, where marriage is the analog man over wife. But what do we see in even so-called Christian homes nowadays? What do we see in Christian homes, so-called Christian homes nowadays. Wimpy men and overbearing alpha females who rule the house, who even wear the, let's call it the spiritual pants in the family. It's I, There's no other word. The only word that came to mind was grotesque. It's an abomination. It's grotesque. And when I see it, if you ask me about it, I'm going to call it out. So most people stop asking me, frankly. They do. They stop asking me. Like I don't want. I don't want to know about. Why not? You don't want to know what Christ stands for. You don't want to know that Christ thinks that's grotesque for a woman to wear the spiritual pants in a in a household in a family. You don't think that Christ has a problem with that? You think it's okay? So if it's true in the homes. Why would we be surprised that this same ideology has made its way into the churches? Don't you see that's how it happens, folks? It's the same breach of authority from the same root cause Tashuka, woman's desire to rule the man. So Paul, as I often do from this pulpit, is reminding the church of Christ's will. Look at verse 12 again. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, back to prosperity proper. Up here on the board. Too many Christians are living a lie. A willful one. Living for self rather than others. Collecting and gathering unto themselves. Building larger barns. Failing the prosperity test. Too many Christians are living a lie. And it's willfully done. There are some that are going to ignore the past two weeks' lessons. I don't like it. I like my life as unto myself. I don't like these lessons. What would you like me to tell you then? You want me to lie? Maybe I should just get a woman up here. It's okay, sweetie. It's okay. I'll just teach you stuff. You jump in my car. You want me to do that instead? Have it become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, which one is it? Do you want truth or you want to lie? You want more of what the world has to give you or do you want truth? What do you want? Seriously, what do you want? Be honest with yourself. If you're honest, some of you might say to yourself, I want to live a lie. I like the matrix. The steak tastes good there. I keep losing I'm sorry, older people. People are like, what is he talking about? First the Daytona race car game, now this. Most people, let's face it, come on. If you've been living for years and years, and you've been learning the word of God, and you're still living the lie, let's just say it's willful. Because if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you know that that's a lie. He's our prototype. How did he live? Oh, I'm brilliant. I'm strong. Mm, I'm a dominator. I'm a gathering myself. Look at everybody. Look at me. Look at me. I got everything. I'm king of the hell. Woo, Is that him at all? No. No. Last time I checked, the scripture says he was rich and he became poor. So you might become rich. Not unto yourself, unto eternal things. For many, this lie has been handed down through generations of family. That's the one I've been thinking a lot about this past week, family. (coughs) Family's like a double-edged sword. A lot of people have been taught a lie from their family. And because it's a lie, the people who should be challenging their children aren't actually challenging them, they're actually promoting it. They won't challenge it because their entire self-esteem is based on the same lie. So why would they teach their kids? Because then the kids would be smarter than them, and the kids might lose respect for them. So they uphold this lie. So families are famous for handing down this lie, generation to generation to generation. For others, they've been taught the doctrines of demons by the world system. And others, well, they simply abide in the flesh as their status quo, which is inherently selfish. Heck, even... Attending a church service is about them. That's why that little sidebar on parading, I shouldn't just say women, but parading people, women were in view, is a problem for some people because they actually come to church to self-elevate. Some people come to church. I'm not saying in here necessarily. I mean, it has happened. I, I see it, but not to the degree I don't think Paul was dealing with. Some people go to church literally, to get another notch in their belt. Did did you did you see my new ring? And he hold it up against the, the girl who's got like a little diamond chip for a ring. Look at that. Look at that. $50,000 it cost. Because my man's awesome. My man loves me. And God loves me much more than you, obviously. Ha, 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 ha. Let's sit down and listen. It's grotesque, or is it not? I mean, the whole thing's like, what happened? Why, why are we not just, like, worshiping Jesus? Why don't we just, like, say, what are we doing? Why, why are we not just worshiping Jesus? What's, why, when did this become about me? Well, what happened? You know what happened. You've been living it for years. And then lessons like this come along, very unpopular ones. I think he needs another vacation. I don't think that last one was long enough. (laughs) All right, that's as far as he's letting me get off topic there. Back to prosperity. A little more evidence from Scripture up here in the board. Christ's perspective, in other words, the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Christ unabashedly and unequivocally denounced the contemporary prosperity gospel. He didn't just say, eh, you got a little right. He denounced it. He denounced it. Go to Luke 9.57. I'll show you. Here's one instance where he speaks plainly to a wannabe disciple. See? A wannabe disciple. This is going to bring out, precipitate something... Very interesting as well, because it's the, it'll be in keeping with the way the world typically portrays Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus is not some weak, pathetic little thing that requires our pity. Let's get to that. Luke nine fifty seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Ah, this is... Whenever you hear something like that, and I don't know if it's a shepherd thing or not, whenever you hear somebody make that promise, you roll your eyes. I've heard it way too many times, and the people aren't here anymore. Why? Because I taught something or confronted them with something that they didn't like. So that's a lie. So be careful. And it comes up a lot. I will follow you wherever you go. You sure about that? Been there, done that. How about John 2, when Jesus says, I know the heart of man, and I don't trust him at all. So, just a little taste of this. I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus is probably licking his chops. Okay. Really? Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no way to lay his head. Uh-oh. Up here on the board, first of all, are we to pity Jesus Luke nine fifty eight. <clears throat> May it never be. One commentator wrote, He does not need your pity. Pity yourself, rather, if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. Ow. Some of you are like Ow! Yeah. He doesn't need our pity, are you kidding me? He, look, his life wasn't a consequence of him being weak or something. His life was a consequence of his being, him being powerful, all-powerful. Think of his deity as well, omnipotent. So our prototype chose this life, chose it to lay down his life for others, chose to come out of heaven and become like one of us. Oh, come on, seriously? Yeah, Seriously. And you're worried about what? Giving from abundance? What, what are you worried about? What are you, what are you concerned with? Look at the prototype. Are we to pity Jesus? No. May it never be. He does not need your pity. Pity yourself. Rather, if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. Verse 59, he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You see, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, and here's, the, you know, it's like the end of a commercial. You know, like the, the ph- no offense, but pharmaceutical things like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, do this and you'll be healed from your bad hearing. But you're going to get the runs, you're going to get heart disease, you could die. It's killed rats in lab. The guy's speaking so fast. like, what, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I, oh, my God. Am I going to die or not? Should I take this thing? You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, it's like. And that's the same thing. I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. And he's like, I don't do disclaimers. I'm not, you know, look at. I'm the God man. I don't do disclaimers. I'm trying to show you how it's done. But, 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 but. No, no buts. You want to follow me or not? So this is what he says. Follow me, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're still preoccupied with creature credit or the spoils of worldly prosperity, then you're cutting a crooked furrow in the soil as you look behind you. All of this tremendous work in your souls is really meant for the humble at heart, for the arrogant will continue with, let's say, business as usual. The arrogant will continue with business as usual. They'll write these lessons off as, ah, no, I mean, it's his opinion. So they'll continue with business as usual. Why? Because they have an agenda. And the agenda, the apple cart, is now being overturned by the Spirit. Unfortunately, most people that hear a lesson like this one will seek a way to sidestep it or slip out of the conviction but as the Word clearly states, any time we do such a thing, it's to our own demise, for God is never mocked. God is never mocked. If a person sows sparingly, example for self, they shall reap sparingly to self. 2 Corinthians 9.6 These are the things the Spirit has put before us. We spoiled, arrogant Americans. And just to get into review mode, In order to possess true wisdom regarding prosperity, you must first reconcile your life with the likes of Ecclesiastes 2, 5, Acts 20, 35, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Philippians 2, 3 to 4, and especially 1 Corinthians two sixteen, the mind of Christ. And if you're going to say you're a Christian and the word Christ is in it, maybe you ought to pay attention to his example. Just saying. To drive this home, let's borrow a point from my previous lesson. I'm going to pick up speed here because we're closing up shop and I'm running out of time. We did a lot of work with Solomon, and Solomon was, was richer than you are now. He was wiser than you are too. If those assumptions are true right now, and his con- conclusion after working for worldly stuff is everything's futility and striving after win, then what say you? So concentrate a little further, these are points of review, hopefully they make a little bit more sense with the extra content behind our studies now. Why does God ordain wealth then? God will bless the earnings of the humble person by subsequently giving them the blessing of giving as an expression of Christ-like love toward others. It's an economy. Both blessings are from God, the latter being the greater of the two. A self-absorbed person will never understand this principle because they are too blinded by their own personal desires for wealth and what it brings to a person in this world who has it. That's the darkness. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, what are you going to do about it then? Do you have the courage? Because courage is really faith, just another word for it. Faith applied, if you would. Are you going to put off addressing the obvious for another day? Are you? Are you going to put off the obvious? you Are going to put off addressing the obvious for another day? Or are you willing to address the problem that only seems to be visible when the word speaks to your heart? Or are you going to continue swimming in the world system of thinking, being double-minded? Here are the practical realities we've garnered along the way so far. There is a false prosperity out there. It's what he's been trying to deliver you from. Self-sanctifiers cling to false end goals and adhere to the maxim. The ends justifies the means. Prosperity to self-sanctifiers appeals to the flesh. That versus the godly viewpoint. The righteous cling to end goals given to them by God. In other words, what's the purpose of my prosperity? They are not preoccupied with having to justify the means by which grace delivers them to prosperity, they enjoy the ride. They live by faith. Romans one seventeen. Go to Matthew 6.19. Matthew 6.19. Just a little bit more. Matthew 6.19. I mean, I, honestly, we're just about ready to eject, be ejected from this course. And it's, um, I could just keep going and going and going and going and going. I mean, you literally would have to be an arrogant jackass to deny what's been coming from the pulpit. You really would. You'd have to be a self-serving, arrogant jackass looking to justify your own ridiculous life. It's the only way you could ignore the things that are coming from this pulpit. Matthew 6.19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Oh, well, what the heck, man? Do I need to read any more? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right. Let's go back to where we started with this before we close. Up here on the board, again, grace. By grace you were predestined to prosper for Christ's sake, only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. From the John 4, 37 passage that we've read in the past, we got this on grace orientation. Is your purpose for working hard so that you can benefit for others? Even it comes down to the work. What does it say? Work as unto what? The Lord. So he says, do my work, I'll bless you I'll I'll even give you a paycheck. But then comes that secondary decision. What's the purpose of the paycheck? What's the purpose of your skills that you now have? What's the purpose of a lot of things? So is your purpose for working hard so that you can benefit or others? But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the, the love of God abide in him? 1 John three seventeen. Christ lived for others. He is grace and truth. The Word is grace and truth and able to sanctify us. We're getting back to sanctification. Remember where we're tethered. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How about we close with some more of Solomon's divine wisdom and then I promise that'll be it. Go to Ecclesiastes 5. It's been in our docket now for two weeks. I'm just going to read it and we'll close. Ecclesiastes 5:10. How about that? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. Again, more on Solomon's wisdom. He had a lot to say about it. Remember, he's richer and wiser than any one of us. So we should listen. Ecclesiastes 5:10, "He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income." This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Ecclesiastes 5.12 The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he has, uh, throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for once again giving us this place of worship this wonderful local assembly where like-minded individuals gather together in humility to hear your precious word being taught from a pulpit that you personally ordained from eternity past. Father, we pray that our hearts remain humble and true, always and forever thankful for all that you've done for us through grace and love. We thank you most of all for sending your son to solve the sin issue once and for all and for making eternal life a function of grace rather than works. We pray also for those unable to be here with us this morning that this message somehow reach into their hearts also, affording them the same freedom that we have received this morning. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.